Hi, I'm Holiday Kirk, and thank you for listening to the New Metal Agenda podcast. If you want to help further expand the New Metal Agenda, check us out on patreon.com slash newmetal underscore agenda. Membership perks include ad-free episodes, Patreon-exclusive podcasts, the ability to submit questions for guests ahead of time, free merch, and more. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, folks. This is Holiday Kirk with the New Metal Agenda, doing his best to keep his excitement inside. Better introduce my co-host, Quick, Cran. Hey, guys. Double Z. What's up? Joining us on tour, big celebrity guests and new co-host for this episode, at least, Stin. Howdy. And the always lovely professional journalist scene veteran, Terry Beezer. Oh, God, does that mean I'm old? Is that what you're saying? You shit. <laughs> you yes. knew it. You already knew this. <laughs> big celebrity guest does not really do this guy justice. I don't have a proper introduction. You know the man. Please welcome to the show. Ross fucking Robinson. Hello. <laughs> Coming straight out of the mountains. So great to have you. Yes. Thanks for having me. And I think I'm the old one here. <laughs> That'd be me. I guess we should just jump into the ultimate question, which is that, first of all, did you actually know the podcast was called The New Metal Agenda? No. I, I was wondering that, too, if he was going to, if that was the first time and you're just going to like, oh, God damn it. So... I guess coming in cold then <laughs> is the idea of, is new metal something that you can embrace fully at this point? A hundred percent. I think that whole thing was for some reason, my insides, when something becomes really, really popular, my insides kind of get repulsed by it and it doesn't matter what it is. It's like time for something new. So when all the bands of the original genre Motley, their biggest, and they're all partying. You know, thing is just so happy, and and I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't this isn't what we started with. This is too like fun. <laughs> 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 I wanted to, I wanted to feel, and I, you know, Glassjaw and and Slipknot were my response to that. Yes, that's something that I had. I was going to ask about was that. When you yeah. had come, when you had come about to the idea of like I've got to kill this monster, and I think you would talk to Kerrang, saying specifically like I need to kill uh, Adidas Rock. You had signed All Men and Slipknot. Yeah, I was so I I think um, I think my feelings were hurt because I wasn't part of all the like super super like mega big time stuff, but a big part of me was. It, it, it didn't match, you know, it, it was like a part of my insides that were wishing I could be a part of it, but couldn't like it, it didn't mix. So, um, yeah, I just continued on my own path. And I think I was just, you know, when I say, oh, look, destroy this or kill that or something, it's really a part of myself that I'm trying to uh, snuff out. It's never about somebody else. It's always me at war with myself you know as far as identity goes when you first linked up with corn to create their their debut album what were you trying to snuff out at that time oh uh 80s metal yeah i was in a thrash band and you know there were there was just like a it was just time for a change you know it seemed like metal was dead at the moment pretty much pantera was huge metallica's forever huge but as far as the metal scene, it was just tired. It was really tired. And it, and also, too, uh, I, I'm a pure believer in the 
Cure band of all time and the emotion and the vulnerability and the the love stories and the the anguish and the the authenticity of that is what metal was always missing always before and corn is the first real authentic true emotional uh revealing fearless most fearless metal band of all time ever in their uh ability to uh expose their their truest raw emotion the and and all of us were in it together whatever john had to say every single syllable was backed up with a hundred percent leaf um and supported so it all worked so well you know i always considered that what made it work so brilliantly was it was it was a group of guys that had something to say but were still working on the skills necessary to say it like like is it fair to say that nobody in corn yourself included was like a virtuoso you weren't prodigies well what is prodigy mean <laughs> you know technical prodigy no not a technical prodigy, but I think as far as uh, a fearlessness and willingness to be completely unique, totally unique. So many times I've I've heard people scream faggot at Jonathan, you know, and that's where the song really came alive. It's just like, no, fuck you. It, yeah, <laughs> that, that to me is a prodigy of fearlessness. Yeah. And I think that that spirit of fearlessness would extend, I guess we're going to jump forward a little bit, as to your work with Sepultura when you just left mm -hmm. America entirely. Was that also part of that impulse to snuff something out? Um, you know, <laughs> I don't think snuffing things is really a theme that I would carry on, on so much. I, I was I was pretty um, extreme during the, the Slipknot phase, but with with Sepultura, it was, it was, it was such a, an insane one, two punch, you know, for me as a record producer and, and I owe it all to, uh, Max and Gloria's kid. I, uh, I guess it was Igor when he was a baby. The only thing he liked to hear was the first corn record. And so they had it playing in diff on CDs in different rooms <laughs> like simultaneously like four different uh stereos going at the same time in their house it was incredible <laughs> and it hadn't hit yet you know it wasn't blowing up yet so um max was just such a so ahead of the curve when it comes to being old school metal and and attaching to something that he loves you know at what point in this era did the idea or the term new metal make its way to you i think it was the somebody in the uk made it up um i if i remember correctly it it didn't yeah, I, I think i think i think kerrang and metal hammer were big in pushing that as a term because in the us it was like sports metal came further down the line but i think you're right it was correct <laughs> it was kerrang and metal hammer that were pushing the the new metal yeah. agenda as it were yeah, 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 definitely. Um, yeah, and and uh, you know, at first I was it di it didn't feel like a great name to me, but what do I know? <laughs> I mean, I guess when you think of it like that, though, it's the alternative is is devastating. There's this interview done with Jonathan Davis around the time of Korn's first album, 
And he gets told, he's like, oh, yeah, your your song Blind made it onto this compilation album of like sports anthems. And he's like horrified. He's like, he's like, whoa, he's like, oh, we don't want any part in that at all. So it would be really weird if we were sitting around and we were like, oh, yeah, Ross Robinson invented sports metal. <laughs> John, that's so Dude, uh, he uh, he was super anti-jock for sure. Yeah. So then how did a sensitive sound like that get caught up to sports metal? Well, I guess it's the same way that like right wingers can listen to Rage Against the Machine. It's like if the sound is powerful enough and the riffs are heavy, you can just pretend it's the lyrics don't matter. Yep. You got it for sure. Um, it, 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 it was it, it was it was a pretty brutal transition before they were accepted like every night. I, I was in Denver with him one time and John got on the bus. We walked through a club and nobody knew who they were. And somebody just punched him in the stomach as hard as they could. Just <laughs> I'm like, who was it? Let's get him. You know? <laughs> but it's you know, poor guy, man. He, he fearless dude. Genius debut record seems to be a big thing with you like that when you spoke about the vulnerability and i guess you've got swollen teeth coming at the minute and your mm -hmm. your answer to kind of turning inwards about new metal was to go to amen and glassjaw two bands in that predicament they're making their first records what is it about a band at that point in their career because you're someone who lives with the emotion of a record and pulling that out of people pulling energy in a kind of Nikola Tesla kind of way out of people what makes people more susceptible to that when they're on a debut record than say when you were brought in on follow the leader not to make it about corn but like you know what is it about that first shot of a band putting records out that connects with you personally it's the the willingness to be absolutely unique and and for me to to you, a record producer is is the one that sets the the vibe the air of the room and you know the work that i would do on myself um you know like a spiritual sort of thing to be willing to express love and and to be more about what i'm supporting than me <laughs> you know and, and i think I think there was an air of love with the beginnings of these bands that was completely trusted and uh, and willing, so willing. And I think that when you're not chasing an identity, there's no limits. Yeah. So when everybody goes, oh, you're this and you're that and, and you read it or people say, I like this and that about you or when you did this and that, like that all goes into the mind. And it, it turns you into, it's kind of like a body snatcher. You become a believer. <laughs> and yeah. as soon as you're a believer, you're limited. And I catch them in the beginning when they're not believers. They're just givers. Mm. And that that is a genre-bending state of being. It's huge. So um, luckily, I... I got in there in the beginning for a, a few of them that were just once in a lifetime and then again and then again and, and you know it's just I, I can't even express like when I look back at it I, I mean I'm so grateful and I can't believe it happened you know
Yeah. And those records, they, they support the foundation of those bands because people can always refer to that. And it's so authentic and so giving and powerful and, and, and raw, you know, yeah. there's no, yeah. it's raw. And, and God, like to have the ability to, so doing that first corn record, nobody knew what it was in the industry. We knew what it was. It was what we were doing. Um, and I had been working with the guys for like two years, year and a half or two years before we did the first record. And that's all. I was like Ross from Corn, you know, and at every rehearsal, always together. And um, cushions, motocrossing, that's part of the carnage. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, um, but yeah, just get, getting oh, this is what it is. I had no input outside of us from labels or industry at all. Mm. No manager, nothing. It's just do what you guys do. We don't know what it is, but cool. And then it's set up as a producer to be that with everybody I work with throughout my whole career. It's like, if somebody comes at me with something, it's like, okay, you know, I'll listen, but it's, it doesn't, it doesn't dictate where we're going or what we're doing it's like i have this vibe of we're on an island and we're by ourselves nobody else exists and after the record's done let's throw the hard drive into the ocean yeah, you know? yeah. nobody ever gets to hear it only we know you know what i, I want to ask have you ever followed through on the hard drive threat like you've actually hurled it in <laughs> no, I just mess with people. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Ross? But, that, that made me really remember something. I want to just quote a little bit of passage of a book I really like called uh, Fargo Rock City by Chuck Klosterman. And this was written in like 2001. And he says, most rock groups dream of being bigger than the Beatles. Corn does not share that dream. In fact, they don't even think about the Beatles at all, ever. And then it quotes Fieldy, who says, I've never owned a Beatles record. I've never listened to one. The Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, those bands haven't influenced in any way. Nobody in the band has ever listened to that stuff. Our musical history starts with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Early Faith No More. As a band, that's where we begin. And I think what makes that so invigorating is that I've always considered and still do consider new metal to be the least nostalgic form of rock music ever made. Do you consider yourself to be a very not nostalgic sort of guy, not a very sentimental guy? Oh, well, um, being, being like racing dirt bikes or being on a mountain bike or touching, you know, messing with gravity. It's all based on, you know, my earliest memories living on the river and uh, on the border of California and Arizona, the Colorado River. And and um, there was always Beatles <laughs> and Credence and these great, insane killer vibe bands playing out over outside of our house over this awesome bay with frogs and dirt bikes and dogs and nature and th this overwhelming beautiful presence and with indigo ranch uh, the reason that we recorded there is neil young recorded there <laughs> you know so that's part of that feeling that i was always that that i it, it, it's kind of like um you know, for a meditator going so deep and seeing God, it's, it's, 
it's like the the is the it in form and just permeating your whole body with with the feeling tone of this overwhelming like shit is so cool oh my god <laughs> and and those those uh those artists that i mentioned you know being in studios like in the 80s and there was always a, a word that would come out of everybody's mouth and i and i didn't know what they were talking about and they just say vibe the vibe is killer here the vibe this the vibe that oh he's playing with such a sick vibe you know and and i'm just like i got to find out what the vibe is what's the vibe and uh you know playing in bands and and really having this realization this massive realization of of what that is and it, to me it it's through the nostalgia of my childhood and the experience of that deep incredible nature and the sky and oh my god it's just what does that sound like what does that feel like you know what's the bar how do you raise that bar you know and i was also always going to this place called agape and there was this woman that was doing all the music there and and she's singing from such a pure place uh uh ricky byers and i would take the bands there i took paul and joey from slipknot and james would go from corn and you know like i would just pull people into this place to this is check this out oh my god <laughs> you know and they're when you're singing for something eternal it lasts forever there's a truth in it that it's like this is why our lungs breathe themselves when i'm not doing it you know so i'm going to give back to that so so the so corn didn't have much of a classic rock sensibility but you kind of brought a little influence in recording that way was absolute pure classic rock there wasn't one piece of gear that was of that time period except for the seven strings and the and Pildy's bass but all the microphones the cords <laughs> the mic pre's the compressors the the speaker everything was built by the moody blues in the early 70s so <laughs> so the birth of of the genre is comes from that place um the old school yeah, it's like a that's that's really fascinating. It's like a collision of the two impulses, which is you know the technology of one era, and then the sensibility of an era that starts with faith no more and moves forward from there. In my opinion, that's kind of where the genre starts to lose its way a little bit is when it gets away from uh, that sort of organic, natural uh, sonic quality. Um, the early days of you know, especially your style of recording, I think, is what uh, makes that music so powerful there's such a direct uh line between the uh, music being made and what you hear coming out of the speakers and you can hear that warm beautiful classic sound you know once it becomes more digital or, or uh, artificial sounding it's when it loses all its magic you know you're so on point yeah like that's that's everything to me and you know if i if i were to turn in the first two corn records mixed like that today people would say it sounds like shit <laughs> they're wrong <laughs> you know they're what wrong. damn so wrong dude that comes up sometimes where people will be like oh you know i like the first 
corn album but the production's a little eh, and i'm like you're out of your fucking mind yeah you're completely out of your you're mind out of your mind it, you, if you if you change that at all you you lose the magic i'm wondering ross has anyone ever approached you about remastering those albums actually i have a cassette of the first record it sounds better than the mastering <laughs> it's like so rich and warm and thick and just like and uh and they they like make the low end more pleasant and and then it from uh from vinyl or tape to cd it was a downgrade and then from cd to mp3 it was just a freaking downgrade to streaming it it's insane how low quality you guys hear of these albums Can we have the tape <laughs> can we have that tape? <laughs> I have to dig it out. I have to find it. But, and no uh, rush. I mean, we'll wait. <laughs> we got time. <laughs> All right. I'd like to give credit to a few of your other productions of that era. In particular, I think your work on the self-titled Cold album uh, is some of mm. your best. I think that's some of your best guitar tones ever. It's like this dueling between like these really reverby disintegration style cleans and these like Steve Albini Shellick sort of raw as fuck distorted guitar tones. And I, I've always loved the way that record sounds. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. I love that record. <laughs> yes. Me it's too. So really cool. <laughs> Do you have anything? So you, could, is there any light you can shed on that? How that one came about? Like I would love to fill in some of the gaps and in info in, in your discography. So I was rehearsing the first Limp Bizkit record and um, Fred was saying, oh, man, I have this singer that's so killer. He's so killer. It's my favorite band. And they were called Brundig. He's like, you got to meet him. You got to meet him. And and I'm like, OK. <laughs> and he brought him over to the, the practice, the pre-production in Jacksonville. And and I. Uh, he was super sucked up and skinny and just kind of shaking and <laughs> just had these like wild snake eyes with this cowboy hat on. I was like, holy shit, this guy's badass. He's <laughs> so cool. He was like, oh my God. And um, yeah, and I just said, yeah, let's do it. And that was it. Yeah. And Scooter Ward, he, he can sing like great, like really, really well. He's a songwriter, yeah, yeah, which is rare in the world. Uh, I'd also like to give credit to this. I just want to say this: the Burning Red holds up. Yep. I know people have their have their thoughts. I think the Burning Red holds up. Maybe the Police cover, a little less so, but I've always thought that, in, that holds up. I went into a, a skate shop in Venice, and uh, Dan, the singer from Excel, comes over to me. He goes, "Dude." You know, it's kind of fucked up that you guys did our cover song because Excel got uh, in the 80s. They put out message in a bottle. And I'm just like, how do how do you even know about this? <laughs> You're like, you can't you can't copyright the idea of doing a message in a bottle. cover. <laughs> Were they taking credit for a cover? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a weird that's a weird bone to pick at that at that stage. Like you like you guys were going to fight about it or something. <laughs> well, I mean, I kind of felt like he was a little bit serious about it, but it was such a silly subject that he couldn't. <laughs> he couldn't be serious like there's no way. <laughs> hey, speaking of your dirt bike 
advice. I do want to say I got into a bike accident on Sunday and dislocated my shoulder. And for oh, anyone God. for anyone asking for the rest of my life, I'm going to say I did that to prep for this interview. <laughs> I wanted awesome. to get closer to the Ross Robinson experience. So I dislocated my shoulder in a bike accident. Dude, I, I was I was at the Glen Helen motocross track one day and I hit this jump and ate it so bad and and I felt like my arm was broken like right here and I was like oh man I don't want to look at it god my bike's in the middle of the track and it's like fuck and so I get up and I'm not looking at the arm I'm just like oh man and I look down at it like it's supposed to be down here but it was way up in the air I felt it hanging down but it was sticking up like I was like raising my hand it was pulled out of the socket and in my chest and i waved down a, another rider and i'm like dude pull my arm in socket and he's like no and i just said pull just hold on to it not pull oh my god and that did uh, it yeah i pulled it in yeah i went all the way to the hospital i should have just fixed it right there yeah yeah when you're bodies in shock like that especially the first time <laughs> it wasn't my first um the, the first time like you pull it in as quick as possible and it's not near as bad you don't have all the swelling yet and all that stuff so and, and ross you were just talking about the burning red with rob flynn i've known rob for years and like yeah he's got a, he's got a he's got a reputation for being hard and tough and difficult to work with. Like he'd say that of his own admission, but it's particularly the tough side of things because you're well known for getting in singers' heads and bringing out emotional performances. For someone who is as steely as Rob Flynn, like you're pretty on record about your relationship with singers like across the board, but I feel like Rob is one of the ones we know less about. Was Rob a tough, because I can imagine Rob being completely willing, but was he a particularly tough nut to crack? And what was your experience like on that psychological level with him? Working with working with Fred Durst was way more intense. And they, they're very similar in the way their brains work. And um I think with Rob, he just he just has such a vision. And as long as you're flexible and it, for me, it it wasn't tough at all. He would he would be a little moody if I remember right, but <laughs> but it wasn't a problem. It wasn't a problem. He was he was very very open and um, super pro. Like his playing, I, I always tell him like his guitar playing. When he was in Violence, I was yeah. My band played with his band, and and I was in awe of his fluidity and it, it just. I've always been a fan since the eighties of him. And um, we got along really well. We we saw each other similarly, you know, and trusted. Yeah, I think I think he really, really opened up his heart and gave everything he had, everything. Mm. Yeah. And when he came to you for the burning red, did he say like, "Man, Ross, I want to rap"? No. Um, <laughs> the drummer is my best friend. Like we were roommates in Hollywood, and I. I think it was, you know, uh, I think it was just the time for uh, the Nookie was on the radio and and Rob, he's 
I think he's uh, he deserves all the all the success in the world. And for him to see people that may not be as talented as him doing really big things, you know, not necessarily Limp Biscuit, but like, you know, just just bands in general. And he wanted he really, really wanted to go after what he knows he deserves. And, um, you know, he's having kids and the dude is a thinker, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. And thinking the process of, of the band's history, that record gave him the blackening and that's their masterpiece in my opinion. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Can I ask about Fred before I throw back to you, Kurt? Um, you mentioned Fred and like, so I had only interviewed Fred in a in a post chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water, everyone who's walking the face of the earth knows who Fred Durst is. And something that's always struck me about him is like I'm a lifelong card carrying Limp Biscuit fan. I have come hell come hell or high water. I I love that band. I love their energy. I love what they bring. Um, but when when you talk to Fred. It takes him at least 15 minutes. And I guess it's I'm from the media as well, right? But like it takes him at least 15 minutes to kind of like come to terms with the fact, like, I promise you, Fred, I'm not here to stitch you up. I love your band. Like, what was Fred like before all of that? Because he's it's well documented that he had like a difficult uh time in his teens. And they joke about the like him tattooing horn on one of corn and those kind of like stories that we know. But Fred was, he always felt like someone who'd been bullied a lot, even within his own circles sometimes. So I wonder like, what was the difference between pre-fame and post-fame Fred? Well, first of all, the, the dude is just internally charming. He's really, really uh, personable. He's extremely enthusiastic. And back in those days, there was, again, no identity to keep up. Uh, no, There's no place for ego. I wasn't holding an ego. They weren't holding an ego. We were just doing what we do. And it was from ground zero, scratch. And um, the dude has incredible instincts for maneuvering out of one situation and going into another one and 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 he would he would go where he knew he deserved with you know whether it be leaving me and going to terry day it was a more controlled you know proper recording than than my style and i think that gave him such a massive success with that nookie song i don't know if i would have liked it i would have i don't know <laughs> it's like wait a minute <laughs> I think he's, you know, he he went through two record deals during the pre-production recording cycle and landed at Interscope because he was so forceful in his, uh, no, we need to do this now. No, now we need to do this. And, and people would just, for some reason, he was able to maneuver like heavy business choice decisions. And it wasn't cheap either. It cost him a lot you know, to do that. Um, but it put him in the right home that pushed it like crazy. It was insane. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think the dude is just, he's a genius at hearing what he wants to do. And he may not at the time know 
what it is, but he'll make moves. <laughs> and it hurts a lot of people's feelings, maybe, or they see him like this or that. But, uh, you know, I think it comes from a pure place, you know, and when you listen to that voice inside, it usually means that there's people that aren't going to like your choice because, you know, you're listening to something other than making people happy. And I think what makes new metal resonate and special is that its bands were very ambitious. I think that it's like almost in contrast to some of the grunge bands that came before and were working around the same time that were more consciously trying to like reject success and, you know, well, we're not going to write the hit singles over again, or we're not going to release singles at all, or we're not going to tour. I think new metal bands were much more concerned with like actually making this work. And I think that you have a certain extension of that because as as concerned as you were with making things dirty and raw and fucked up and these crazy performances you still are a guy who's like every the songs need choruses yeah a song is a song yeah i've explained this so many times where anybody can anybody can write this part the torso and then anybody can write a torso with with legs but the face you know, when I'm looking at you in the video right now, I'm not looking at your chest. I'm looking at your eyes. That's the chorus. And without your chest, you wouldn't have a heartbeat to to support your eyes, you know, and it all works as a body. A song is a body. The bands that did super, super well had incredible songwriting skills. Incredible. And um, for me to go into a, a situation where a band isn't they don't really have that craft. It it's it doesn't usually work for the most part like it does with a band with the craft. Obviously, <laughs> you know I can add so much to it and and co-create with them around structure and whatever riffs or whatever beat. It it's such an art form, and I think that only a few people are born with it. You can't really learn it. <laughs> You know, if you're coming from a, a metal sort of zone. So for me to go in there and say, OK, let's put a chorus in here and be like, oh, yeah, that's a good chorus <laughs> because it's coming from an inauthentic place, not for the lyric or for it's like, oh, yeah, it needs a chorus here. It doesn't work in in a in a transparent way. It works on paper or by ear, by sight. But that transparency of a songwriter, like that that eloquent, beautiful thing that comes through people. Max Cavalera, dude, <laughs> he's great <laughs> songwriter. When you were cutting Slipknot, were was there a conscious? So I don't know if any at any point in the '90s you're like, ah, yes, new metal. I make new metal. This band makes new metal. We are making new metal. But with Slipknot, you guys were creating something like a truly definitively new metal album they had the turntables the percussion the sampling the rapping uh but it was also coming from an impulse to tear down new metal so it kind of ends up with that chaotic push and pull where it's pushing the genre forward it's trying to destroy the genre that created it uh i'm curious how that those impulses came to be and how it came out in that direction it was for me it came together when i went to see him live and um through some insane circumstances word got to me that they wanted to work with me and it was so impossible that I had to go it's way too woo-woo for me not to do it and and um then seeing it live uh resonated where the the early demo tapes I I didn't really 
it felt kind of like that old 80s sort of thing that happened because the double bass was really fast and nobody was doing double bass at the time. Zero. <laughs> I think even Slayer was taking double bass out of their songs. <laughs> it, it was crazy time. And, and I was thinking, holy shit, it's time to bring it back. Let's bring it back furiously <laughs> and that's who they were that's where they were and we took all of that um that raw kind of riffs oh my god the riffs are so good the the fire behind the drums the fire behind every single person touching an instrument or a vocal mic it was just pure hunger <laughs> oh my god you know what i i don't think you wouldn't have gotten to it but I actually wrote this really, really big and long list about the 50 greatest new metal albums of all time. And that's number one. So, oh, my God. And I did get to show <laughs> Sid. I did get to show Sid Wilson that once. Like, I just I, I ran into him in the studio and I'm like, I'm like, look, I wrote this. I wrote this that's thing. So cool. You're number one. <laughs> yeah. He's like, cool. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Cool. I guess I. Uh, as a drummer, that album is the reason I ran out. I saved every penny I had, and I went and got a double bass pedal. Joey Jordanson's drumming on that, and what you brought oh. out of him is just chef's kiss. Oh, thank you. Like, oh, my God. Imagine, like, bringing Joey in the studio and being like, I don't know about the double bass. <laughs> <laughs> no way. The double bass. <laughs> no way. Have you ever recorded a band to a click? The Cure, Robert Smith insisted on it. And how am I to deny the goth lord of all? <laughs> you tried, right? Of course. <laughs> but he won. He won that. Well, you know, he wanted the urgency and the that he wanted to take it really urgent with The Cure. And and I was there for that. And um, I, I think it, it would have been a, a bizarre even more bizarre cure album had there not been a click because their early stuff is it's all like drum loops you know tape mm -hmm. loops they've never done anything like that so i don't even, yeah it's it's you know and they're also they were like all so much older than me what do i know <laughs> i gotta be flexible gotta be flexible and on fire at the same time i have my opinion and i lay it down super hard but producer i'm not there to to force people into what i think it's it's about infusing an extreme amount of support and love and and care and undying loyalty to the record just going all the way no no half measures yeah do you ever consider critical reception when you work with an artist making such a radical departure from their established sound like suicide silence or ghost man yeah, well, I mean, if if we go and do anything to give somebody what they're familiar with and what they think they like, what I think you like, um, so I'm putting all creativity in a in a tight little box. That that disease that I mentioned before, believer. <laughs> I believe that you know better than the artist, so I'm gonna cater to you. It's like no but for some people like pop groups or whatever they're they're into it that's fine for them 
Suicide, suicide Silence seemed actively stoked to be setting fire to their rule book. Like, well, I remember, I remember talking to them like at various points when they were making that record, and they seemed to like revel in the fact that they were go that they were literally just putting everything that anyone knew about them and setting fire to it. Yeah, well, it was interesting. The before I heard anything, I went to meet the guys and they were like warning me, oh my God, you're not going to recognize any of the songs that we, we wrote for this record. They're totally different. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> um, and then, you know, it came out the way it did. I want to ask about something and I, I hope I hope this gets solved you have like a snare sample it's almost like a signature ross robinson snare sample that i think first pops up on roots by sepultura but you can also hear it in our arsenal when the first snare drum in that album actually hits and it's got a really hard attack and a long tail you know that one that's that's andy wallace and he he does that in all his productions all his mixing oh it's his snare yeah andy mixed it and um that's his that's his go-to uh sample that he uses and and he uses that little trick in like every record i don't think he did it he didn't do it on rain and blood or never mind but he does it like constantly that that's crazy i've always associated that with you <laughs> it's so funny you know and speaking of andy wallace uh some of the members of At The Drive-In would later kind of, they would criticize the Andy Wallace finish to Relationship of Command, but that's one of the best sounding hardcore records ever made. Were you like yeah. into the whole like very clean commercial sort of finish to that? Well, see that that record, I, I sat with Andy through all those mixes and and made sure that, that there were no samples anywhere. That's all real drums. And uh, and he mixed it. He's He's great. Like his, the way he would take so much care with each, each drum, he would do these little minor movements, you know, he's playing the, the, the faders and then he'll go to the bass and play and like make a little mistake and rewind and then play the bass just slightly. So he doesn't use like massive compression and it's all one level. It's like, it, it moves with the music and then he'll go with the cymbals and then the the toms and guitars like everything is so customly touched by his fingers and that record the dude is he's incredible man <laughs> we were we were a really good uh combo when we'd work together it was like it's like it, it was hard to fail <laughs> That record's been talked a lot uh, about in the van this particular trip, so it's nice to hear uh, <laughs> uh, hear some insight on that. Yeah, the I had a really good time. I, I remember going into the studio and just telling the dudes every day during the middle of tracking, just, oh my God, this is so good. Thank you for letting me do this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just so great what i always found compelling about that era was there was a sense from major labels that post hardcore could be the next new metal and that's how you ended up with a band like at the drive-in doing conan and farm club 
doing that, you know, doing one arm scissor, like Virgin thought like, this is it, baby. This is going to number one. This is going to be huge, which, which is like something that'll never, ever, 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 ever happen again. But it is like interesting to look back at that time and be like, yeah, you know, labels used to put millions of dollars behind bands like this. Well, that one, it, we didn't spend that much money uh, making it. Um, Andy Wallace is a lot. He's like a hundred grand. But as far as having millions poured into it, there really wasn't. It was just such, it, and, and I kind of disagree. Like if a band came out today with the way they perform, <laughs> it, I guess Turnstile is like a, a super watered down version you know, very controlled, very pro-tooled version of At The Drive-In, like as far as like they look really cool and they have decent songs, you know, um, but look at them because they're them. They're, they're like headlining shit, you know, and um, without The Drive-In, great song. It's like, what the fuck? You can't deny it. Yeah, I mean, they were really like that's and that is the thing that resonates about those live performances that they did on national television is like look at them up there just fucking this up like like you know air quotes like just going crazy like yep. like the like the Jules Holland performance in the UK so good <laughs> it's like the most like <laughs> it's so awesome yeah who there's, is that who's piano bench terry help said that again on Jules Holland didn't they like steal Robbie Williams's piano bench it was, yeah, it was Robbie Williams that they were doing it with at that point in time. Ross, do you know, why do you think that there's never been like a massive hardcore band? Because when we think about, like, when you look at the size of Limp Biscuit or Corn or like what happened to those bands, right? Kirk's right in what he's saying about like that, at that point in time, like you made two of my, literally two of my favorite records of all time in Relationship of Command and the debut Glassjaw record in that period of time. And there was a real belief like post what had happened with corn and that sort of thing it felt like there was a lot of investment from people that they truly believed that that stuff could be the next big thing and then hybrid theory happened but forget that like do you like why do you think there's never been a, a massive hardcore band and and why did that scene not do what people would put like like what grunge did for seattle well Actually, I feel like, say, that first Glassjaw record was, that was a blueprint for My Chemical Romance and also The Used and, and others. of They were offshoots, and they gave everybody that permission to go there. My friend Craig Aronson, when I got Glassjaw off of Roadrunner and brought him over to Warner, he signed Glassjaw. And we put out uh, Worship and Tribute. And because of that record and signing Glassjaw, he was the one that got My Chemical Romance. And um, because they wanted to be on Glassjaw's label, from <laughs> what I know. Amazing. Yeah. So it it did happen. <laughs> didn't, didn't they just sell out like arenas all over the planet Earth? Yeah, yeah, God, yeah, yeah, tens, <laughs> tens of thousands of people. It's funny, I would never have 
I wouldn't have drawn the line to My Chemical Romance, the used and those sorts of things, because like I was I was the glass jaw guy for Metal Hammer. Yeah, and I, sp- I spoke to them a lot around the time of worship and tribute, and when the used and that sort of stuff had happened, glass jaw were very like uh huh uh-huh, about it. Yep. Like, but I would never yeah. have drawn that line to My Chemical Romance. But you're right. Yeah, it's that East Coast style of of writing that guitar playing like fuck man really great basement musicians on long island man yeah shout out <laughs> jeff rickley speaking of God, the united yeah. speaking of the united kingdom i guess the closest you ever came to that sort of electronic infused hybrid theory sound was when you did uh start with a strong and persistent desire for vex red do you have any insights to share about that album i don't know if you've ever been asked about that they, they they sent a demo tape and I thought it was really good. And I just did a, a label deal with Virgin and said, I want to do this band. And they're like, okay. <laughs> so I pulled them in and we did it. And um, I uh, had, it, they were, they were sitting in the U S waiting for me to finish Iowa. Just, hanging out for like we went overtime <laughs> they're just like dying to start just these english dudes hanging out in venice beach and we jumped straight into it and had the best time ever it was so fun were you relieved to be done with iowa you know my experience with that record is different than the dudes uh, they had a manager at the time that i absolutely horribly disliked um i felt they were getting ripped off and and i got into their business a little bit and it just it it wasn't my position and it wasn't cool um but as far as musically and my love for the band um it was undying and uh it's always super tough to um end a record because everything you are everything you've ever been is put into that piece of work and and when you love people so deeply it it's always difficult for me so um to stop the record it was probably a relief because we worked so hard but missing the guys and stuff no what that's never a relief have you guys chatted at all recently anyone you and anyone from slipknot i'm See the swollen, swollen teeth band is Sid Wilson's production. He produced that, and uh, Ghostmane and me, and uh, my friend Bill Armstrong from Side One Dummy. We started a label. Eric Ghostmane brought in. He brought in a band for me to hear. He goes, "Dude, you should you should produce this band." And, and it's Omerta. I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah. fuck, <laughs> fuck yeah, fuck yes. <laughs> and and I called up, I called up Bill because he's just sold side one dummy. I'm like, dude, let's start a label with Oberta. Check this out. He's like, fuck yeah. And then the next day, I met with Eric again. We were working on something together, and and I uh, I go, dude, my friend Bill said he'll do it. He wants to do a label with me. You want to be a, you want to do the label together, all three of us? He's like fuck yeah it's so we met and it was just like fuck yeah and uh eric goes well what should we call it i'm like well 
I don't know. And he goes, well, people describe ghost main music as blowed out. I'm like, that's it. <laughs> so, so the, um, the band or the label name is blowed out. And, uh, Omerta was our first signing and, um, they're still working on their EP after two years. <laughs> and, uh, meanwhile, Sid, uh, gave me the, the swollen teeth thing to help him with my engineer. And I, I mixed it together and, and then I showed it to, to Eric and Bill and they're like, yeah, let's put it out. I'm like, all right, let's do it. So there it is. Swollen teeth is the first release, but Omerta was the, the nucleus of the label. You're really not someone to rest on your laurels, are you? <laughs> Can you explain? <laughs> like, I think that you could easily have settled into this elder statesman position of just hanging out in Northern California and being like, ah, corn, good times. But you're not. You're like really fired up. You're like, we're signing this band. We're starting a label. We're getting all these things going. Oh, yeah. You see the excitement come at me. <laughs> it's like we're having a good time it's just fun and and it just happened through covid and you know we're having a good time and uh you know there's there's things in the woodwork you know as far as producing but um i i'm not producing omerta or swollen teeth i'm putting them out and waving the flag i i love that um that other people are kind of burning their freaking faces off behind the speakers and it's not me <laughs> you know and i can support that art it's really fun can a band still conquer the world ross because like you're we're in an era now where it's a shitty time to be a musician right it's really fucking difficult to make any kind of money whatsoever rock music has just come off its first decade where there's been no footprint on mainstream culture for the first time since Black Sabbath. Like, what can a rock band realistically do today? As someone, you're starting a label, right? And I know you do it because you believe in good art and it, the bands that you're signing speak speak volumes. A murder are fucking brilliant. But, like, what can a rock band achieve in 2023? Do you feel like that can ever come come around again? Or is it just, like... Because it's bleak out there, man. I see when Pepsi is doing all electronic music and everything's electronic, electronic, electronic. It's like, where do you go from there? More electronics? <laughs> it's like, it's so controlled. It's so controlled. And I feel like the danger of three to five to nine people pulsing together, it it creates a a mood and a, a a mystical sort of inspired thing that would never happen if it was one person. It, it, it's just impossible with the personalities pulsing and pushing together. So in my opinion, um, you know, it'll happen when it does. And as far as what I enjoy listening to, it's always people, but I'm not, you know, a 13 year old girl. <laughs> no, that attitude. <laughs> Fired. Yeah, but um, I'm gonna always keep doing it the way I do it, whether people like it or not. Um, I know natural and uh, real is 
the timeless way of doing it because it comes through that inspired thing comes through this vessel into a waveform which is a, a vessel and the thing riding inside of that vehicle of a sound wave is a spirit that's so real and so infinite in its expression like and you add people to that it's just mega, mega infinite and beautiful and um you can't resist it because i i think we're all just so hungry ah just so hungry for that breathless thing oh it stops the mind it stops the thinking the the projections the past the future everything becomes here now that that vessel when it's when it's vibrating and pure and done with all that ambition and willingness and and letting go it, i i think the right group of people will be able to smoke the world and and you know it takes a lot of pretty impossible combinations you have to have a great songwriter it could be any genre <laughs> it could be just straight black metal with a beautiful song with extreme violence in it and it's just so musical and incredible like it it could drop people to their freaking knees in gratitude man it could be any genre so you've noticed the excitement like rebuilding around new metal and the sound you created in the bands that you brought up recently i'm seeing it in front of me on my phone right now sweet <laughs> all right this is the greatest thing that'll happen to me all year um and, and i think that the excitement too is really manifesting in some incredible new music especially influenced in ways taking influence in ways that rarely are okay there was this band last year um called chat pile and they put out yes. this album called God's Country. And it was and it was the first time I had heard an album that sounded like it, it listened to that first corn record in a way of like the reverence you would expect someone to listen to a Led Zeppelin or a Beatles album. Like, like, like this is the blueprint and we can create new things with it. And they've struggled to like accept the new metal label themselves, which is great because that just makes you so much more new metal. But we're coming to terms with it. <laughs> oh shit. It's thin. Of Chapile, <laughs> Stan, do you want to jump in on this? I'd love to get your your interest. I would love to hear you ask some questions here. Talk about it. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess in terms of the influence, I mean, it's it's definitely uh, you know for me in particular, like the first Corn record and then uh, Roots, you know, Sepultura, and I think it's a combination of the uh, the the sort of sonic qualities of those records. Um, the emotional quality of those records, but then also kind of Ross, as you've alluded to, like people who can actually like write songs, right? So you have yeah. you have this intensity and abrasiveness that's kind of happening in this music, um, but with a uh, sort of palatable quality that connects with you, you know. Um, and that's always been like like super important to me, and like what we try to achieve with what we're doing. Like we want to be abrasive and scary and frightening and all these things but we still at the end of the day want you to be able to nod your head to it you know <laughs> absolutely the 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 heartbeat is a groove and i think i think when when we when we hear what we are something really heavy happens 
<laughs> it's like, oh, I recognize you because that's me. And it, it's so familiar. And and it could be some crazy alien source. Did, did you say you're in chat pile? Yeah. Yes, oh, I am. Dude, did I, didn't I contact you guys? Uh, we had we had a brief email exchange, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're great. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. That definitely means a lot. <laughs> yeah. Even, you know, one of the members of Chatpile did say that new metal is mostly completely unlistenable. Oh, that was you. You said that. Can you believe it? <laughs> what an interesting... Look at how Destiny has brought us all together. That's right. Hey, but it's <laughs> Ross's albums are the ones that I actually like, you know, so... Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, it's kind of like I, I've talked about earlier, like a big problem for me is that, you know, I, there's such a purity in kind of the first wave of stuff that came out and it has this organic quality to it. It has uh, kind of the hunger that you alluded to. But at a certain point, it kind of misses the mark and starts becoming this. It just sounds very manufactured and soulless. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, yeah. it, not even from like a production standpoint, just from the songwriting or the the point of view, even of the artist, you know, I, I just, I think that uh, that whole movement started as something kind of beautiful and new and unique. And it just kind of got co-opted and turned into, you know, just a, a mess of corporate soulless rock, you know, eventually it didn't take long either. <laughs> no. Um, and that's where I, that disease being a believer. <laughs> so a, a label guy will sign something because it resembles something that's already popular recently. And then, you know, they're doing what they're doing because of, you know, you know what I mean? It's just people trying to get something that they kind of didn't earn. But um, I, I don't think that people don't deserve success because those, a lot of those bands have great songwriting with a genre that, may not be authentic <laughs> yeah. yeah but that all but but it's like that's such a it, that always happens like at what point can you just say like okay here's where the genre started here's where the genre got co-opted you know and not get too upset about that because that almost feels like the natural life cycle of any of these big genre moments what happens to everything you know it you know it happened to you know grunge thrash metal i mean everything it's just like it's just a matter of time if people start paying attention and think that they can make money off of it you know it's just it's going to but the other thing that i can't stress enough was that like new metal hit the ground ready to sell out like we were you know we were signing puma deals and shit like it was like <laughs> it was like right away it almost like preempted its own with the when people started to turn on the genre and start to like think of it as something other than like this new and exciting and vibrant rock happening was when Terry Big by Mudvayne. <laughs> what? No, I'm joking. That's not what I'm I was going to say. No, I was joking. I was joking. That's a weird way to pronounce Nookie. No, fuck you all. You're all so wrong. And I can't wait to edit you out. No, it happened. It happened when Crazy Town Papa Roach and Lincoln Park happened because that was when new metal was like pop music, where it was like, oh shit, they figured it out. And now we're in like the hot 100. Because like Corn and Limp Biscuit did not have big hot 100 radio hits. They didn't. It, it literally did not happen. And then those three bands happened. And suddenly we were in the top four. We were at number one with, with Crazy Town, or yeah. we were in the top. 10 with Linkin Park or we were in the top 40 with Papa Roach and then, then it became like ah shit they figured out how to do the formula yeah and it wasn't a formula when we were beginning at all it was just 
what we were doing. It there's definite certain things you can do. Tune tune the guitar down, tune the bass down, uh, play with the groove, rap, <laughs> sing a chord. You know, it's 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 pretty pretty easy. I think that a lot of the distrust around bands like Papa Roach and Linkin Park were additionally because they were big immediately. Debut albums, huge, which wasn't really like with Limp Bizkit and with Korn and with Sepultura, there was a long build. There was cultivation. There was time. And I want to be really, really clear about this. I think the first Papa Roach album, I think the first Linkin Park album are spectacular on their own merits. You know, Crazy Town, okay. No, but I, I will defend those first two. I will defend the first thing in part first Papa Roach albums forever, but they did hit hard and with a lot of money behind them. So that definitely they're, they're more careerist. Like if you think of Limp Bizkit and Corn, they were ambitious, but when those records hit, that was careerist. They're like, we are going to be huge. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I had a heart that, see, that, that, that to me is the reason I was saying those things like destroy, you know, Adidas rock or whatever. I was just so like against all of that, not the originals. It, it was that like that genre that was so precious to me, just getting bastardized and used. It made me pretty ill. Did, did they ever throw loads of money at you, Ross, to do one of those rubbish bands? They knew better than than to ask. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> there, and there's a lot of people that that come up to me and say, "Oh my god," that that think I would instantly hate everything. You know, it's it's weird. <laughs> it's like you guys are so great. You like us? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but um, yes, yeah, the. Those corporate things I wasn't into at all. I, I think the road that that I took was really fun and um not on purpose either, you know. It was just whatever happened. You did do a so, vanilla ice album though. <laughs> that was part of the 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 rage that I was holding. I was thinking that, you know, like this is gonna show people how silly. <laughs> <laughs> you are you know at the time my brain was so it was just really competitive with with the um the obvious sellouts and um i wanted to do something punk rock in a non-punk rock way uh just punk rock attitude um what's more punk rock than doing vanilla ice when you know it's the most uncool thing in the world it just it, it just seemed like the perfect thing to do at the moment a record of yours that i also would like to give it to do you the when i remember when the canyon by the used hit in 2017 yeah is it, is it raining yeah sun shower is so blessed so cool it's gonna snow here in like just outside of of la so the Canyon by the U's, though, that was like a late, a real late career triumph for them. It was their best record in a very long time, maybe their second wow. best even. And it really came out of fucking nowhere. How did you end up with that band? How did I get to do that? Um, well, Bert lived by me for years, and I'd see him walking by, by my house in Venice. 
we say hi every once in a while or whatever and we never hung out but um we were around each other you know and then uh last jaw opened for those guys when they were hanging out with kelly osborne my old manager managed the used and there was a wedding i think and uh one of his daughters got married and the used current manager worked with my old manager and said hey would you want to do a used record i'm like fuck yeah (laughs) and um and we had a good time it wasn't an easy record to make but um turned out to be a, a really great experience tons of passion and um and we did it so raw <laughs> like it's as raw as you can raw <laughs> yeah and i think that's the approach they needed because by that point they were coming off of some records that had not been received so well and were very like cleaned up and shiny so i think it was probably really healthy for them to have someone drag them backwards into i mean like glass jaw it wouldn't exist without glass jaw you know that's where their sound comes from glass jaw and at the drive-in yeah yeah um they're uh they're they're a special band man bert's a, he's incredible like all those guys they're really really special i feel pretty honored to to have been able to work with them I think a big, I think I remember a big turn in the the idea of new metal not being the worst, most horrible thing to ever happen was when you did Lament for Touche Amore because it was one of the first times I remember new metal being written about positively. Like I know the singer for that band had really high praise for like the first Korn album, but it was also something where it was like acknowledged very head on is like, hey, Ross produced this and he's brilliant and those corn albums are brilliant and it was like oh i guess that's a thing that's possible because it's funny to even think but like three years ago four years ago people weren't really taking this genre seriously yeah for me the worth in in what happened was the level of of absolute giving the going into a performance and not settling for a well sung properly in key performance, especially vocally and you know drum wise, and just making sure that that we get the maximum and leave it on tape, unleashing <laughs> as hard as you can go with the dynamic, whether it's soft to slam, you know, like you know, touche is they're so dynamic. I had so much fun with those guys. To me, that band is the perfect band. Like they're a band. Like, and they're so rare. (laughs) They work together. They love each other. They they breathe each other's air. They musically, they're the very top of the top. I mean. And the lyrics, oh my God. I mean, how much more how much more passion and art can you get out of a vocalist? It's so good. So yeah, like I, I do I do feel like it's a it's a a post-expression of of my past passion. Um, and we come together, you know, just whatever the influence is, and you know, we it's hard to take responsibility for 
for performance when, you know, I'm basically cheerleading <laughs> and saying, go, go, go. Deeper, deeper, deeper. Where the fuck are you? <laughs> you know, it's just. That being said, Ross, you do have a certain way with drummers. Oh, it's. I've been so fortunate with drummers to to get to record such incredible drummers. It it just kind of drives me crazy to think about how lucky I've been. Um, you know, it, it's funny because I uh, I usually see a, a drum being uh, well, not usually, always. I try to make sure that the drums are the voice of the singer. So the drummer needs to know why he's playing the drums, what the song's about, who who is in the story, like what happened, what does it mean to you? Like what what's gonna happen in the future? Like like all of all of the mystery of, of the story of the song, where it came from, and 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 I want the drummer to hold the sticks and start the song and go, it and then you get chills before he hits the first downbeat, you know, just off the clicks. It's like, fuck, you know, it has to have that. Like the drums, man, it's like the, the human body being the instrument into something that you hit. It's, it's a voice. It resonates. It's pure power. It's fucking the greatest. <laughs> It's one it's it's one of my it's it, it's probably my favorite part of the whole recording process is getting those initial the the initial takes and getting those cheer chills or tears or yeah just it's just second to none experience it's incredible guys yeah i feel like i've ran my gamut do you guys have any questions i don't want to trample everyone else that was actually going to lead me into my question. Uh, if we take away Korn's debut and Slipknot's debut, do you have any particular drum performers you've recorded where you step back and you're just like, oh, that is it right there? Working working on the At The Drive-In record, I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed, and it was a super struggle. Um, I, you know, when you, you know, record Igor Cavalera, then Dave McLean, then... David Silvera, <laughs> freaking Joey Jordison, dude. It's like Tony came in with this awesome red hot Middle Eastern blood and he wasn't a, a swinger, a groover like I was used to. And, and, and I was looking for this feeling in every song. And, and I, I think I pushed him and pushed him and pushed him so hard that he can't listen to the record today. And I, I regret that. I feel bad about it, but fuck, man, they just got paid. What was it? A million dollars a day at, when they played Coachella because of that record <laughs> for the art. I, I was just, I was going through it, man. I really wanted to feel that feeling and just almost die in it. Like it was, I, I was experiencing a, a an emotional, expressive death on that album through the drums and 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 uh, it's my favorite 
album to listen to out of everything I've done. And, and it's because of all of that pushing and all of that hard work and the willingness of the players to listen to my insanity. It was, uh, it worked out really well. Can I, can I ask about, um, so we've, we did an interview where, um, we were talking about a particular band that you went back to work with and they didn't have that same fire that we spoke about earlier when we were talking about the, the debut yeah. records. Um, what I wanted to ask you is what keeps you from being that way? Because I'm someone that has always wanted to move forward. I get bored. I don't want to do the same thing again and again. I, I believe in pushing things forward. And that kind of puts me at odds with a lot of people in my game. What keeps mm -hmm. you what keeps you doing that and what what stops you from becoming that way? It, to me, music is a ministry. You know, people go to church. Um, I go to music and music to me is it's it's God's voice. It, it's proof that infinity is a pulse and a life form and it's nothing and it's invisible and it's more tangible than anything physical and and we get to really truly know that through music so when i'm going for these performances it to me it's we're we're not bodies we're not it's not even music it's a quest for it's space travel into into the heart of the infinite life yeah Hey, Stin, I know you had something. Stin's got to jump off in like 15 minutes. He's a huge famous guy. He's on tour. So Stin, <laughs> what did you want to, what did you want to? I just have a very specific nerd question that you may not even have an answer for, but Sean Olson by Corn is one of my favorite songs of all time. And I have to know, why did it not end up on the album? Why is it a B-side? Was there, do you remember the decision making or were you even there for that part of it? Yeah, it was, well, definitely there. <laughs> um, actually, I actually spaced and placed all the songs. The, the dudes were on the road. I did all that myself. Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. I, I, I can't let that one slip by. You sequenced Life is Peachy? No, self-titled. Well, oh, that was self-titled era. Okay, okay, my bad. Well, both. You sequenced those records. You put those in order. Yeah. Whoa, that's crazy. I've always thought Life is Peachy is their best sequenced album. Oh, cool. Um, I, of course, we'd have like, we'd talk about, oh, Twist is going to be the first thing we hear. And, you know, Daddy's going to be the last thing we hear. Blind is going to be the first thing. And, you know, but then everything in between was just kind of, well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, for specifically for Life is Peachy, I always thought putting Adidas in like that last final run of tracks was a really brilliant yeah. maneuver. That doesn't happen enough with with new metal albums. They get really front loaded, but that it saves that for way down there. Yeah, because no, <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, what was the other question? So Sean Olson, and that Sean, ended oh, up. Yeah. That was on the Crow 2 soundtrack, yeah? Yeah, yeah. We needed we needed the song for that soundtrack. And um and it wasn't like it wasn't slamming like Baltung or you know the 
you know, it, it wasn't a slamming of a of a performance from our zone. But I think that, uh, you know, we didn't know. <laughs> it's kind of hard to find, too. It's not like on streaming services or anything anymore. And it's just a shame because I think that song, it, there's something so magical, especially with JD's uh, performance in it. I don't know. It's just it's kind of a one of a kind. You're right. It's not as like slamming and as aggressive as like the other songs on that album, but there's something so magical about it. And I've just always wondered why it, it uh, never made the cut. Yeah, it was really good. Sean was a guy that would hang around him in Huntington. And he was a, he was like this like full blown Huntington beach dude, good looking muscular. And, and he, uh, would get i think he would give the guy speed all the time he was always tweaking balls and um and he'd always say what's your lie and and he says that in the front of the song right what's your lie he does that's sean olson i always thought that that song sounded really grungy like like i feel like Jonathan's almost doing like an Aberdeen sort of Kurt Cobain sing style on that one. It's like way unlike anything else they'd ever recorded. I get like God of emptiness, morbid angel type vibes on that song, like in their own way, but it just has that, I don't know, malevolence to it. I I love it so much. Yeah. It's a goodie. Is it on that tape you're going to dig up and give to us? (laughs) (laughs) I might have it on that tape. I got to dig it out of storage. (laughs) But you'll be the first if you need help moving stuff hey i'm around well what i'll do is um transfer it to digital that would be really cool yeah (laughs) you know ross we me me and z here we've met you we met at the uh no you remember that oh you do remember that that's crazy we were we were standing off to the side of that patio and i was like i was like i was like that's ross fucking robs i was like telling you i was like i was like dude that's Ross fucking Robinson. I am telling you, that's Ross Robinson. So then, yeah, we went over and I was like way too starstruck to be like, come on our podcast. Cause I, I came off like a total fan. <laughs> so I guess what it took though, was me creating fake dialogue between Joe Biden and Donald Trump over if at the drive-in <laughs> is a new metal band. You smoked it so hard. I, I can't even believe how good that was. It was <laughs> Because I've been saying those same things for so long, and and you nailed it. I'm like, oh my god, finally! Because <laughs> it's it's just crazy. It's insane how many times I've had this fucking discussion where people are like, oh, so at the drive-ins a new metal band, huh? And I'm like, no, they're not, yep. but they are a part of new metal history, and you cannot pretend that's not true. But people don't people don't register that part. They're just like, ah, you can't say it. you can't do this. You can't post this song. You can't do this. I I when I when I reposted it, like I think that's the most views I've ever gotten anything that I've posted in the <laughs> and you're super legit. You are so legit for editing it to credit me. You you don't understand how much that does not happen on the internet. Like yeah. that was fucking. I was like I was like this is the greatest day of my life. Uh, well, well you, which isn't true anymore because now this is the greatest day of my life. So you're making me feel all bashful. You're making me feel bashful, man. <laughs> well, if I could bring the mood down, maybe just a tad. I was oh, wondering God. if there's any records you look back on and maybe wish you had handled differently. 
Is there anything in your discography that you have any like regrets or reservations on? Corn three. Corn three? Sure. And um, I think the Cure record I would have done differently as well in that I went in there with just total conviction to take it back to when it was this and when it was that. And, I, you know, like, don't you remember? Remember when? And all of that bullshit when I, I discovered the hard way that when you when you evolve as a person, it's more important to be authentic to who you are today, not who you were. But I still think I, I really think if I can defend your your work on those records for a moment, I think your impulses were bang on, especially with the cure in 04, where they were having their like MTV icon moment and everyone was all like, oh, yes, the, the cure geniuses, Robert Smith, what a genius. I think that you came in at the right time to be like, fuck that shit. Let's make a great album now. Like, let's not keep doing this where we celebrate what you have done. Let's do something now. And I also think that album is good. I think it's a good album, damn it. I do as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do too. It, it's, it's, you'll never hear Robert Smith go that hard. <laughs> <laughs> Ever again. Or before that, like, I pushed him ears, like, literally. And, and um, we had such a an incredible connection and like a this artistic sort of love affair appreciation for each other that was absolutely i i it basically after that record it was like now what and i just fucking went into racing dirt bikes and because it like it couldn't get any higher for me. I was like, okay, <laughs> what can, what can give me that feeling and that, that inspired and it's basically breaking bones and racing and turning my back on music for a little while, you know, just reaching for something else. Cause it, it was such a great experience. It, I really went through that phase. Um, I'm not there anymore. I, I'll die for music now. I think it's the greatest thing. But um, but with the with the corn three thing, um, poor Ray. You know, I wanted him to be David Silveris so bad, and um, you know, and, and Brian wasn't there, and 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 John. You know, he had like crazy stuff going on in his personal life, and you know, later on his wife passed away, but like it was all leading up to that during that record. And it was a really fucking tough time. Reggie was, he was, he was good for about 15 minutes in the studio. He would pound a, a giant monster energy drink when he'd get there. And then he would come down on the sugar and just basically timed for him to go home. <laughs> so he wasn't really there long enough to remember the songs and, um, it was tough, man. It was so fucking tough. And then with the drums, I'm explaining to Ray, like, horn means this and it means that. And it's, oh my God, it's just so like, rah. And, and I'm, I'm expressing all of these incredible, like life altering moments in my soul about what corn is and like how special it is. It's so dark. It's so fucking real. It's so fucking rah. And, um, 
the poor guy was just like coming off of David Lee Roth band and and he, he David, he's such a great drummer. His 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 drumming is beyond belief. And and David would have understood what I was talking about because he conjured up those feelings in me, you know, back in the day. And that's not fair um to Ray. And uh, you know, so it just came out like Jonathan said it really well. It sounds like everybody's trying too hard. Yeah. I'll never make that mistake again. You did wring some blood out of this, that stone though. Cause like Oildale is great. Papa pill is great. The bass on that record sounds fantastic. It might be the best field he's ever sounded on record. So, you know, it, it's like, it wasn't a wash. And I think that impulse is still something super valuable and not. It's for me, it's a wash in the, the, the bar is very high like think about the fire of peachy like think about the fire you know it's yeah like, but i'm 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 more comparing it to the not fire of untitled or see you on the other side because that's the band those don't, those don't exist <laughs> i want i'm putting them down not at all I, i'm just saying for me like ross and corn is a certain thing that i was I was really, really, really um, push overly pushing, and poor John. You know, he was tormented, and you know, by me, and, <laughs> you know, just pushing him so hard, and it, it was terrible. What do you think when they talk? What do you think when they talk negatively about life is peachy? Because some of the some of the members of Corn, because I'm I'm completely at odds with them on this, but some of the members of Corn are a little bit um, disparaging of Life Is Peachy. I also think it's their best album. Well, John called me up last week asking what mic praise we used on the Peachy album. So, so hi. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool, dude. It was it was uh, those guys at those that great age in that great time zone so pure and raw and unleashing just scratching the surface of success it, it it's a really great um diary of their lives in my life i think it's perfect i want to throw it back to the cure for a moment though so i think that I had to say this. I said this before you got on it. I'm going to say it now. I think what, what would have been really great is if you had done St. Anger for Metallica because that was them trying to do a Ross Robinson album, but without a Ross Robinson. And it it's atrocious. And I think they needed someone to be like, write choruses, don't write songs this fucking long, and don't go to therapy yet. <laughs> I, I think I could have done a pretty good job with those guys. Have you heard it? Have you heard? Did you ever have you ever listened to St. Anger? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, bad. They, you know, <laughs> that's enough. No, that's enough. I don't need we don't need like Loudwire or Metal Hammer to be like Ross Robinson slams Metallica. So, you know, I don't need more than that. But I do feel like I really I think the point that I was trying to get at is I wish you could get a hold of more of these classic rock bands to be like to give them that idea that like, Hey, you could make your greatest album ever right now. So, so Ross, this is all a really long winded way of saying, I think you should work with you two. <laughs> 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 They're laughing, but I'm not. I saw Bono 
on the balcony after I did the corn record or the cure record. And we had a really long conversation by my house. They were about to go start a record. So I was trying to say, hey, <laughs> you want to rip something? <laughs> but uh, that was as close to you two as I've gotten. We can make this happen. If they approached <laughs> you tomorrow, would you say yes? Of course. I'm gonna pull some. I'm gonna pull some strings. <laughs> we're, we're putting it out in the ether right now. Ross Robinson, YouTube, 2023. Dude, that would kick <laughs> so happening. much. That would kick so much ass. You can't it even would. pretend. That would be insane. Because I can't think of a band more more primed to be. YouTube three. Remember who you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There it is. <laughs> they they have all their dudes. It would. Yeah, be, it's the same band. Yeah, it'd be it'd be great. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good idea. Terry, do you got anything for the for the Ross Robinson? No, no. Uh, to be to be perfectly honest with you, I just I enjoyed what you had to say earlier about uh, the energy of art and what it can do, and that it can still have influence out there. I, I've like uh, I've worked in media for. 21 years and I am kind of at the at the juncture where I'm pacing out just because it's been so long where it's felt like good bands can't get anywhere right like it just it, it feels like a band has to sound a certain way to get in with streaming are more and more artists uh talk to algorithms but I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the press itself then uh, to to close up on on this kind of thing because it's been an interesting start to the year because my job used to be bands and fans didn't have a point of communication there's the press now bands can talk to their fans directly two of the biggest breakout stories of this year don't even talk to the press um as well as being very stale in progressive ideas What's your view of the press these days? Because talking to bands used to be great. You used to really be able to talk to bands about their art and connect with who they are as people. Whereas now in a clickbait world, you just feel like an oil slick for bands and artists and that kind of thing. What's your what's your view of the of the changing face of that and the press in at large? You know, Sid and I did a revolver thing for uh swollen teeth and they went from zero to a lot of a lot of press and and it it created like such a and without you guys there's no way it would have happened but i think that um sid and i doing the doing the interview together was it was something that hasn't really been done before the band not saying anything, keeping their anonymity and us waving the flag and, and speaking about the process and how the label came and how Sid's process of recording was and what he took from our experience together. And, you know, we got to talk about, you know, mention other things, you know, in with it, you know, as out, kind of outsiders of the band. And it was super unique and got crazy good response. Just like anything else, press just needs to be, it, it's hard to be unique because bands say the same things, you know, it's, <laughs> but um, maybe add somebody, you know, involved, you know, like 
mix mix people up, kind of mixing genres. Um, it always makes music more interesting. So I think that's what Sid and I did is we mixed interview genre with that. Yeah, it was incredible. I'm super stoked about it. You're very valuable. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because like it's it's just it, it feels like um that's with like they they hate me saying it but like people don't read as much anymore and like it's this like a podcast like this the the re the only thing that i think is future proof as far as media is concerned is the audio format is the biggest way you can reach people. Anyone listening to this can be walking, can be doing the dishes, whatever. When they talk about Joe Rogan uh, doing bigger numbers than CNN and blah, 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 I, don't, I think they're looking, but they're not seeing. Like the audio format is a way of reaching people. So it's interesting to, to get an artist's perspective that it feels like that message in that way still has some kind of leverage. It's huge value. And also, too, it depends on what you're what you're seeing as success in, in, in what you're doing, where starting the label is very similar to, OK, the first go back to the first corn record. It's like my be beginning. The first week numbers came in. James called me up and goes. Oh, my God. Oh my God, we sold 300 records this week. Can you believe it? Each CD was opened up and they looked at and saw our cover and, and they they pulled the CD out and they put it in their car and they pressed play. 300 people. I'm like, stop. Oh my God. Like, so with the label, with swollen teeth, just seeing like oh my god there's like 400 plays already <laughs> you know it's like it's the same feeling it's like when you when you go on a, a cleanse and you don't eat for like nine days or something and you have your first bit of like maybe mango or something and it's like whoa it's less is so much more especially when you're starting something from nothing, you know, and not chasing corporate numbers. It, mm. it puts a whole new perspective in, in your art, in your value of what you're doing. You're not chasing something. It's not for something. It's an offering. It's a whole different way. And, and I think it resonates, you know, in the product, what you're giving very much. That's excellent. That's good, good, uh, fresh perspective, Ross. Right on. <laughs> I want to bring this home. Your heel turn against Adidas Rock is well documented. When, but when did you start to come around to the idea of new metal being something to be celebrated? Uh, when I stopped being competitive. And like, when are we thinking that was? Well, it's kind of a, it's a, it's, been a thing running inside of me whenever i was competitive it wasn't cool like it was it was a war inside of me and shit would come flying out of my mouth it wasn't cool and you know and i thought i knew something and i'm comparing and it's like us against them you know it's like the whole slipknot one record was just made with pure fury and it worked really well for the time but 
you know, it, it doesn't bring any kind of joy. <laughs> I mean, we could have a lot of joy making that record and, you know, it, it was, it was kind of a miss. It was kind of a mixture of all things fiery and badass and cool and, and hungry and, but that competitive thing, it's it's a setup for failure in um happiness. And uh and uh I think there's enough room for everybody, good or bad, in the world. Like everybody. And um if people say yes to it, then it gets supported. If they say no to it, you still did something that is important to you, which is mainly the only thing that is important you know so um yeah i was a little uh off in my thinking when i was saying that shit it wasn't cool there was some pain behind it and resentment and you know all kinds of stuff and uh i'm glad i went through it i'm really grateful for it because i don't ever have to do it again is it fair to say now that ross robinson is on the new metal agenda. <laughs> I'm on. I'm on uh, whatever enemy. Yes. Yeah. Here we go. I'll are. take it. I'll take it. Ross Robinson, <laughs> new metal confirmed. The allegation. New metal allegations confirmed. Everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I would like to thank you on behalf of everyone that's in this podcast for making all of this possible. There's literally no way any of this is happening without you being a part of it. So thank you for creating the sound that has defined our lives. Wow. Gosh, you're so welcome. And thank you for supporting us. That's, that's more important. We we've been able to eat <laughs> because of you. Thank you. Well, we've been able to breathe because of you. <laughs> yeah. It's corny, but it's true. And you know, yeah. it. Yeah, he's, he's not wrong. You have uh, been responsible or at the helm for some of the most important records of not just mine, but I think everybody's lives here. So thank Absolutely. you. Wow, thank you guys. If I not really... for that Slipknot album, I would not be the new metal maniac I am today. Wow. Yeah, if not for Life is Peachy, I would never have figured this out either. Wow. You guys are awesome. No, man. You're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Praise from Caesar. I'm excited for you guys to hear the new Omerta. They've jumped freaking leaps and it's it's like another five years advancement not not the time in between it, it's crazy i'm so yeah, excited to yeah, hear it. Get, him, <laughs> get him to bloody get him to bloody finish it ross <laughs> <laughs> it's fuck it's so good I, it trips me out like it's so extreme and full-on and musical and it, it, it's it's a freaking yeah they outdid themselves However long it takes, who cares? It's on. Well, on behalf of the New Metal Agenda, I'd like to say thank you to our guest, Ross Robinson, one more time. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Big thanks to co-hosts, a special co uh, celebrity co-host, Terry Beezer and Stin of Chapile for making it. This is Holiday Kirk, just once again reminding you, always be listening to New Metal, bug everyone you know about the genre, and have yourselves a wonderful day. <laughs> <laughs>